You're listening to TIP. Hi there. I'm really delighted to introduce today's guest, Peter Keefe, who's one of the great unsung heroes of the financial world. Since joining an investment firm called Avenir Corporation back in 1991, Peter's racked up a dazzling record, trouncing the market by around three percentage points a year. Thanks to the beauty of long-term compounding, that adds up to an enormous margin of outperformance over the last 33 years or so. Peter's a grand master at identifying great businesses when they're undervalued and then holding on to them for many years, often decades, in fact. But he isn't just a superb stock picker. He's also one of the wisest and most insightful people I've encountered in the world of money management, a profession that he regards as a sacred calling. As we discuss in this conversation, when Peter meets or mentors young money managers, he often says to them, you're serving someone. The question is, who? It's a wonderful and slightly unsettling question, I think. And it's been quietly smoldering away in my mind for months since I started thinking about it. I suspect it's something that all of us should ask ourselves, whatever it is we do for a living. What's also fascinating to me is that Peter has flown almost entirely under the radar drawing very little attention to himself and almost never speaking in public, despite his outstanding record as an investor. I actually only heard about him because of a very talented and thoughtful friend of mine, Saurabh Madan, who runs an investment firm called Manveen Asset Management. Saurabh wrote to me a few months ago to suggest that I should try to interview Peter and mentioned that he had huge respect for him, both as an investor and as a human being. After listening to this episode of the podcast, I'm sure you'll understand why Peter inspires that kind of admiration. He's a remarkable role model, and I have no doubt at all that he'll deepen and enrich the way you think about investing and business and life. In any case, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks a lot for joining us. You're listening to the Richer, Wiser, Happier podcast, where your host, William Green, interviews the world's greatest investors and explores how to win in markets and life. All right. Hi, folks. It's really a great pleasure to welcome today's guest, Peter Keefe, who's a superb investor who's very quietly and really without any fanfare at all, built this superb investment record over more than three decades. It's great to see you, Peter. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, William. Uh, It's a a real pleasure. You have a terrific record of beating the market by a mile over the last 33 years. But when you started out in the investment business as a trainee stockbroker back in 1980, I, I think it's fair to say that you didn't necessarily seem destined for massive success as an investor. And I'm wondering if you could tell us how you stumbled into the, into the profession. And my sense is that there was nothing in your background to suggest that it was a particularly great choice for you. No, I was stumbling around Washington, D.C. after having graduated from college at Washington and Lee University in 1978. I sort of had a dim view that I would... Um, work on Capitol Hill for a couple of years, and then maybe go to law school, and then maybe become a country lawyer. And then as I spent more time in Washington, I saw these 40-year-old lawyers who just looked absolutely miserable. I said, well, I don't want to be 40 years old and miserable, so maybe I'll think about doing something else. And 
I was working as a gopher boy for a think tank in Washington, not even on Capitol Hill. And I literally mean gopher boy. And I said, well, this isn't for me. And, you know, I don't know what I want to do. So I waited tables in Old Town Alexandria for a period of time. And there was a customer there who thought that maybe I might be useful in the brokerage business. And I had absolutely no idea what the brokerage business was about, but it sounded like a high class job that might actually pay me a decent income. So uh, he had me interview with his firm, which was Bache and Company at the time. And uh, I didn't get a second call back from them, but uh, sort of the seed had been sown. I saw an ad in the newspaper and a uh, firm in Virginia uh, hired me, trained me. I was then recruited by Johnston Lemon and Company uh, in 1980. And uh, they, at the time, were a significant regional presence. They had taken Geico Public, for example, Marriott, Washington Gas, Electric, Potomac Electric, and some others. And so uh, they were well-known in D.C. And so they had a bunch of people from my alma mater working for them, including its president. And so they asked me to come interview. And you might be surprised at who interviewed me, but the branch manager of the Alexandria, Virginia office, a guy named Chuck Ockrey. So Chuck took a look at my resume, and he had done a couple of years at my alma mater, and so he recognized that, and he offered me a job with Johnston Lemon. I took it. Not long afterwards, he became the firm's director of research. But before then, we had connected, at least philosophically, on the idea of value creation. Now, let me back up just a little bit. Uh, I got into the business uh, just as the market was entering a significant downturn. I think I made my very, very first trade when the Dow closed over a thousand in 1980, I think it was, and it was on its way to 775 or something like that. So it was about a 25% decline. And I was what they used to call a bleeder. I mean, I would just, I, I couldn't understand why these businesses were declining in value. I had this wonderful research in my hands that said it was going up, not down and gave all the reasons why. But inexorably, day after day, these businesses declined in value, and I didn't understand why, and one of them even went bankrupt. And so I was I had a full head of hair then, and I was tearing it out. So I got on a bus, went up to the local community college, bought a stack of accounting books, taught myself accounting, and that permitted me to understand financial statements. My firm was kind enough to let me do my own work, uh, by this time, Chuck and I had developed a rapport with regard to how the investment process works. I think we were both exploring how it worked and feeling our way into how the value creation uh, process really unfolded. And he became the director of research at this firm. He left to form his own firm, the eponymous Ockery Capital Management and uh, in 1990 or thereabouts, and I succeeded him as the director of research. I hadn't been a great success as a stockbroker. I was okay, but I didn't think that these businesses should be sold to people. I thought that the conflict that a broker had of living on commission and transactions was something that I found abhorrent. It was a hindrance to my career. So I knew from Fairly early on, then I wanted to land on the buy side of the business. And in, uh, not long after becoming Johnston Lemon's director of research, 
I ran into a gentleman named Charlie Makel. Charlie had started Avenir Corporation. You know, we're, we're, we'll get we'll get to that in a bit because that's really the second the second leg of your journey. And I want to keep focusing a little bit on some of the lessons of this first period because, yeah. in a way, it was a it was a really good introduction to a lot of the things that were were wrong with the profession, right? Because notwithstanding the fact that you lucked out and you started to form this lifelong friendship with Chuck Ackray, who's one of the one of the great long term investors, you you were not impressed with the the quality of research there when you went, right? And you were not impressed with the conflict of interest. And can you talk a little bit more about what you learned about what was wrong there? Because I, I, you mentioned to me when we chatted a few weeks ago, you were talking about how one of the most fundamental problems in the industry is the principal agent conflict. Can you talk about that and what you learned about that? And because I think that's one of the one of the most enduring issues that we all have to face as investors. Sure. So this was the early 1980s, and your listeners might not be aware that in 1975, uh, the SEC allowed commissions to be negotiated as opposed to fixed, which is how the business had worked forever. And um, that meant that there was going to be competition for co commissions, and that gave rise to the discount shops like Schwab and TD Ameritrade and Fidelity and others who could compete solely on commissions. And that was really shell-shocked a lot of people in the business, some of the old-timers who are accustomed to going out and selling a couple hundred shares in local utility preferred stock and being on the first tee by three o'clock in the afternoon. You know, suddenly it turned into a cutthroat business. And those of you, your listeners who've seen the movie Wall Street understand uh, what I'm talking about. So I just wasn't cut out for that. I mean, I just wasn't emotionally prepared to, to, to do the things that you had to do to be successful in the business. So I sort of muddled along and, and uh, for a, a decade, and all the while, I'm, I'm trying to hone my talents as, a, as, an, as an investor. I understood intuitively that value is not created by the flickering electrons on the screen or by news, as most of my brokerage colleagues did. I, I knew something else was going on. But there had to be an organic process underway at businesses that answered the philosophical question, how does a dollar become more than a dollar or less than a dollar? And how does this happen on a unit basis, a unit being a share of stock? So these were all philosophical questions that I endeavored to answer by going through this process of teaching myself accounting and then trying to apply the small lessons that I learned on a daily basis to the art of investing, you know, whether it was my own money or other people's money. It just, it was a, you know, the entire industry was undergoing this radical change as a, as a function of May Day. I remember some of the brokers who were holdovers from that period of time. And, and like I said, they're just, they, they're walked around in, in a daze. I mean, they were shell-shocked because most of them, and they were all men, unfortunately, were of a different age and different era. And they didn't want to compete and they couldn't compete in this environment where you had to come up with some razzle-dazzle story uh, to sell a stock or you had to have the um, emotional and perhaps ethical indifference to sell a mutual fund with a 7.5% front-end load, which meant that uh, in an average year, your investor was giving away at least one year's worth of return. 
before they even broke even. You know, another popular investment product, as they call them, by the way, uh, calling somebody's money a product just just like chewing aluminum foil for me. Do you think, um, Peter, because you came from a background where you didn't have a lot of money, that that it kind of upset you even more in a way because I remember you saying to me that yeah. when you were growing up, like to go to McDonald's once a month was kind of a big deal. So, I, I mean, how did you how did you react when you saw people having having their money invested in products like that? Yeah, we weren't poor, but uh, you know, we my parents were both children of the Depression. My mother was essentially orphaned when she was quite young, and uh, my father was fortunate enough to go to college, but there just wasn't a ton of money. There was enough put four kids through private college, but the, the idea, these are depression era people that I grew up around. And the idea of entrusting your money to uh, someone else, giving them discretion, as we call it, was just anathema. And you simply didn't do that. And to this day, I, I still have some deep part of my reptilian brain that says, wait, what? People are handing their money over to someone else, whether it's an institution or an individual? Uh, to let somebody else call the shots. That just is not the type of environment in which I grew up. And I didn't know anybody who owned stock. I think there was a couple of shares of some utility stock that was in my parents' safe deposit box. I don't know how they acquired it. I also have, I'm looking at uh, some gold company that my great-grandfather invested in that disappeared, but I, but I framed the certificates and got them on the wall here as a reminder of what can happen. And you also, so, you came yeah. out of Washington and Lee, right? Which is the same school, coincidentally, that Bill Miller went to. And I, I, I remember when we spoke last, you said that that also had a kind of formative influence on your mindset towards these things. Can, can you talk a little bit about how, how that shaped you and your sense that maybe you should try to behave in a, in a relatively honorable way, despite the profession you've landed in? Well, Washington and Lee has uh, a long-standing tradition called the Potter Code, uh, whereby you didn't lie, cheat, or steal. So if you embraced it, it was a place for you. If you didn't, it was not the place for you. And there was a single sanction, and that was expulsion. So we all bought into it. And uh, at least if you were going to stay there, you bought into it. And so it's something that I think most of its alumni carry forward into their professional lives. And it's formed a bond among the alumni that I think is exceptionally strong. Uh, but, you know, going back to the environment which I grew up, Anthony Deaton refers to uh, money as irreplaceable capital. And uh, we don't think about it these days, but uh, to a certain generation, money was not plentiful and it was irreplaceable. So you were incredibly careful with it. Yeah, I had this... Um this discussion with uh, with Marty Whitman when I was um, interviewing him, I, I guess in the last few years of his life, and I, he, he was always a really wonderful guy to interview and was a brilliant investor and brilliant mind, but he had managed money for my mother at a certain point. Uh, I'd introduced them and he ran a separate account for her, he and his team. And they ended up kind of doing a terrible job during the financial crisis. And when I asked him about it and I sort of said, you know, why why didn't you... Um, you know, how, how come you got whacked so badly by the financial crisis and then didn't take advantage of it when everything fell apart? And he said, well, as I got older and richer, I kind of got lazier. And he's like, I knew in 2007, I should have sold some of those stocks. And I just never really got around to it. And, and he's like, but what's the difference? You know, if I give charity, you know, like 
tens of millions of dollars less and my kids tens of millions of dollars less. And I was, I really didn't have the heart to say to him, dude, my mother is affected by this. And, right. and I, it, it really sort of rankled with me. And I, I was thinking about it this morning. Like that's I, wondering like, you know, should I have been a repressed Englishman and not mentioned it? Or should I have sort of said, you know, look, you violated your fiduciary responsibility to my mother and she's paying the price for it. Right. Well, I won't tell you whether you should or shouldn't have, but um, I'm reminded of the old discount broker commercial where the couple comes in and sits in front of his desk and says, do you have any retirement plans? And the broker says, yeah, I'm going to buy a yacht and I'm going to tour tr travel around the world. And they go, no, no, wait a minute, retirement plans for us. But the point is, it's clearly Marty should have been thinking differently about your situation, particularly since it's, it's your mother's money. It's one of my filtering mechanisms is thinking about investments as though my mother's money is going into this. Buffett talks about writing his letters for his sister. I think about it. My mother, who's uh, no longer with us, but didn't know anything about investing. But, you know, is this a business that my mother should be invested in as one of my thresholds? Also, one of the reasons why I ended up wanting to interview you was because our mutual fan, Saurabh Madan, who used to host the um, talks at Google on investing and, and now runs his own investment firm, Manveen, uh, having previously worked as, as Tom Gaynor's deputy chief investment officer. He said to me, you know, you really got to talk to Peter because he's not only a great investor, but he really regards investing as a calling. And one of the things that Saurabh quoted to me that had a big impact on him was he said, you always ask this question of, uh, you would say, you're serving someone. The question is who? Can you talk about that? Because that seems to me such an important insight. Well, look, you know, a lot of what you write about in your book and in your, in your podcasts, people are, you know, one of the things you're really good at, William, is getting people to open up about what really makes them tick. And I think if, if you opened up the minds of a lot of people in this business, you discover that you know, their motivations may not be exactly what they think they are. Hmm. And I think money is an incredibly powerful motivator, and people may not be willing to admit just how powerful a motivator it is. You know, I, I think it was Henry Kissinger who said money's the ultimate aphrodisiac, and it just can accomplish all kinds of things. And I think we all know that subconsciously. And so, and of course, am, am I interested in the rewards, the financial rewards of this business? Absolutely. I don't know anybody in this business who isn't, and I'd, I'd worry about you a little bit if you, if you said that you weren't. But having said that, this business is a calling. And I think that when I'm talking to people about why they want to be in this business or when I'm mentoring younger in investors, I do, this is sort of, it's sort of an ominous statement. It says, we all think that we're in service to others, but sometimes you're serving yourself. So I sort of ask this question, and it's, it's gently, you're serving someone, but who are you serving? Make sure you understand who you're serving. So, you know, we're all in service to others, but make sure you understand who you're serving. I wonder if it so, changes as we get older, because I, I often find when I interview great investors, it seems like early in their lives, there's a sort of, I, I have no factual basis for this. It's, it's more impressionistic. But I have this sense that there's a real hunger often for money, a, a kind of 
ill-defined hunger for money, whether it's to get out of straightened circumstances, if you're someone like Bill Miller or Mario Gabelli who grew up with nothing, or a desire to sort of impress people and get, you know, be noticed, you know, which I think, you know, if you were someone like Bill Ackman who came from a very successful family, you know, you, you needed to make your mark. And then at a certain point, it shifts, maybe one, at least for a lot of people. I don't know. And then also there's a sense of just loving the game, right? I remember you, one thing that I heard you would ask the people you were interviewing for jobs was um, you would say to them, would you do this on a teacher's salary for five years? And I think that's a really important issue as well. Like, you know, actually having to enjoy the game enough, the, the actual craft. Sorry, I'm going on. Well, yeah, do no, you have you, any thoughts? You've, you've, got to, you've got to enjoy the game, but you've really got to appreciate the craft. And, and you do have to. The reason I asked that question, would you do this on a teacher's salary? It's, it's serious, but it's also a trick question. Because anybody who's good at this is not going to have to live on a teacher's salary for very long. But I don't want to be involved professionally with people who are doing this solely for the money. You are serving someone, and you should be serving those who need your skills. If you are good at this business, then you have an obligation to give those skills to those who need it. And they're desperately needed. They're desperately needed by hospitals, schools, retirees, poor people, wealthy people who simply don't care about the investing. So the need is enormous. So I think it's important to approach this business from a standpoint of service. If you're any good at it, you know, the money's going to rain down upon you. More money than you ever imagined and more money than you're ever going to need. So you need to take the money out of the equation. Because if you're any good, you're going to make a lot of it. If you're not, you still might make a lot of it. But I think the principal motivation has to be to serve. Now, when you're a young man, young woman, you know, we've all been there. You just want to go out and slay the world. And I think that's just part of the natural deal of, you know, being young and moving to a new city like I did and wanting to do something. I mean, I, I tell people I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I wanted to do something and I wanted to make an impact on people's lives, a favorable impact on people's lives. I'm not sure I even cared about making a favorable impact. I, I think I wanted to be noticed and I, I wanted my life to amount to something. And, you know, I, there, there was just a sort of ill-defined desire, this yearning, this yearning to make some kind of mark. It was very ego-filled, yeah. definitely. I think we're saying exactly the same thing. I mean, and I think that over time, my objectives evolved. Yeah. You know, on day one, you've got to pay the rent. You know, on, on, on day two, you know, you, you're thinking about building a family. On day three, you're thinking about the legacy. So your 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 way you approach your life evolves over time. And uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I just like I said, I, I got here in D.C. and thought I was going to be a lawyer, then decided that that was a, a really bad idea, and I just wanted to do something. You know, I had a lot of energy, and I was curious about everything. You know, which can be a problem because if you're curious about everything, it's hard to focus on one thing. And you got lucky, I guess, that after what probably the best part of a decade in the investment business, then you, well, I guess you'd become director of research at your brokerage firm and then kind of leveraging the fact that you had that new title, you went off and started to look to join a buy side firm, having, having sensed that the sell side 
was slightly conflicted and unholy and not the place to be. And so you ended up at Avenir in 1991. And you were very lucky, I think, to, to meet Charlie McCall, whose name you mentioned before I rudely interrupted you about 15 minutes ago. Can you tell us about Charlie? Because clearly he had a really important role in your life. And this is a guy who, I, I think he's now about 86, 87, and, and you worked with him for 22 years at Avenir. And he was obviously a terrific investor. Who was he and, and what was he creating at Avenir? And, 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 and what, what did you learn from him? Yeah, I learned a lot from him. And by the way, before I forget to mention it, uh, you and I have something in common. You know, when I was in college, I never set foot inside a business or an wow. accounting classroom. Huh. You made but, up for it in the long run, though, whereas I never became proficient at studying accounting statements. And one of my great compliments in my career was when uh, a guy who runs a, a forensic accounting firm that advises hedge funds and short sales offered me a job, despite the fact that I had zero formal training in, in accounting. But uh, obviously, I turned it down. But going back to Avenir, so I just happened to run into Charlie. He had someone who was assisting him at the time, and we're both in the CFA class. And he said, you know, the guy who I work for is in his mid-50s. Uh, he's got this low investment management firm. Uh, he's concerned about succession. And I said, well, that's interesting. I said, I was sort of down the road with a large firm in New York to go up there and run their research department, but uh, that would have been an intermediate step for me. But um, so this fellow introduced me to Charlie Makel. Charlie and I uh, got along instantly. Uh, he had formed Avenir in 1980. By background, uh, Charlie uh, graduated from Princeton with a degree in chemistry, and he was a chemist for a couple of years afterwards, and then he went to the Darden School of Business at the University of Virginia, where he got his MBA, and he became a banker. And so he was a successful banker and ran the commercial lending unit of the local bank here in D.C. that's now been merged three or four times. but. He'd always had an interest in investing and invested uh, his own money and some of his family's money over the years. He'd been successful at it. And a banking client of his said, well, listen, my family has some substantial resources. And why don't you just leave the bank and, and, and come run our family's uh, investments? Charlie said that sounded like a good idea. And so he formed Avenir to do that. So. Uh, while the term wasn't in common usage at the time, Avenir was, for all intents and purposes, a family office, you know, with eight or nine million dollars under management when it opened up its doors, which uh, back in 1980 was a lot of money. And uh, by 1991, when that rolled around, uh, the assets had swelled to 18 million dollars. And Charlie was in his mid 50s. And uh, Avenir had, had to get registered with the SEC because it had a sufficient number of clients, truly having accumulated this friend, that relatives, and some other portfolios, because he'd established a reputation as a pretty good stock picker. But Charlie's an interesting guy. Uh, he's not, he's, uh, he's quiet, thoughtful, extremely in intelligent, and he's wired to understand how businesses work. And he's an extremely quick study. 
And so he was just a, a natural born stock picker. You mentioned Marty Whitman earlier. I'd put him in, in that camp. Now he could see value in a lot of different types of business, a lot of different types of industries. Uh, but we were both were, were rooted in things like the intelligent investor, Graham and Don, and uh, Buffett. And uh, so we threw in together. And because um, I saw an opportunity to commercialize what had essentially been just a small, internally operated family office. And uh, Charlie had a succession problem to solve. So scratch both itches, my entrepreneurial itch uh, and Charlie's need to get a successor. But it wouldn't have worked if we weren't intellectually compatible. We were different enough so that uh, we had approaches that could complement each other. Uh, but the Venn diagram overlapped enough so that um, we, could, we could work together and, and, in fact, enhance each other's processes. It seems I like the principles thing- on which... Avenir's success has been built a, a pretty simple and pretty timeless in many ways. I mean, you, you have this fantastic record. I, I think when I last checked, it was over 13% a year for the last 33 or 34 years, something like that. So beating the market by a long distance. And yet the principles are kind of timeless, these ironclad truths, as you put it. And I'm, I'm wondering, A, whether those have changed over the years, but B, if you could summarize what the essence of it was both then and now because it seems like it seems like you were kind of distilling the core of Buffett and Munger and Graham yeah now you know there's a million people out there who speak fluent Buffett and Munger uh, but they don't invest particularly well I think it was in your in your book Zach Zacharias said that uh, the in fact, I, I wrote this down, so if you'll permit me to refer to some of my notes. Yeah, thank you. Uh, he said, um, articulating this stuff is easy. Internalizing it is not. Yeah, that's that was Nick, I think. Nick Sleep said that. Yeah, and that's Nick's true. That. You can, it, it, there's this huge gap between being able to talk, as you said, fluent, fluent Buffett and Mungerese, but actually doing it. Boy, is that hard. Yeah, so I underlined that in the book about five times because, you know, early on, I think we got extremely lucky. Charlie and I threw it together. One of the dynamics that made us work was, you know, he was uh, the, to use your term, elder statesman, and I was the young guy with the fire in the belly. And I I think that that kind of economy sort of resonated and, and it was great in terms of our relationship, but uh, I think it also appealed externally for some reason. Uh, there's a fire and ice thing going on there. But in any event, we had a terrific results early on. Uh, the markets were, were roaring, and so we had the wind at our backs, and we got lucky in a handful of businesses. Like I said, I, I devoured everything that Warren and Charlie and, and all the others, all the other greats of the age were, were saying. That doesn't mean that we really knew how to implement it. Doesn't mean we know how to implement it today. We wound up buying a handful of concentrated businesses that treated us extremely well, particularly early on. And you're right. You know, we're a couple to three hundred above the S and P over three decades. It's disproportionately early on in the first fifteen twenty years that that record was achieved. I think we've been more marketish uh, for the last decade. But whether it's because 
uh, we applied the Buffett and Munger principles, which we were assiduously trying to do, or got lucky, uh, we wound up buying a handful of uh, businesses that simply turned out to be really, really great businesses that compounded for many, many years. And then one of my biggest mistakes was uh, cutting back some of those businesses. I don't think I had yet read uh, Warner Charlie's admonition to not to cut flowers and water the weeds. And I did a fair amount of flower cutting and weed watering in those uh, first 15 or 20 years. But nonetheless, we were able to hang on to enough of these great businesses that um, we wound up building a, together a pretty good track record. Then in 1998, we brought Jim Rooney into the business and the rest is history. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network in the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. Yeah, I, th- I, I, I wanted to dwell for a moment on that idea of um, the, the biggest mistakes you've made, because you said recently that um, my biggest mistakes have been early sales of great businesses, and you described that as the silent killer, where you, you sell compounders too soon. And while we're dwelling on your mistakes, can I, can I um, ca- cause you heart palpitations by asking you about Pool Corp, which is a pretty good example of this? Sure. Yeah, I think Pool Corporation is the biggest mistake I've ever made in my investment career. And uh, like you said, you know, selling early is the um, 
uh, high blood pressure of the investment business. It's a silent killer. And, uh, you know, people will always talk about the business they bought that went to zero or the one that went down 50% or 75%. Um, yes, that's bad. You want to avoid that. But the business that you sold too early that went on the compound tenfold or twentyfold after that, uh, in my career, has been a real killer. And I bought Pool Corp at the right price. Interesting story that I could tell you about going down to visit management in Covington, Louisiana, uh, which is not exactly a business mecca. But in any event, you know, it, it checked all our boxes. Uh, Manny Perez de la Mesa, who was still the chairman of the board, I think, was the CEO then. He'd been at GE. He had a great background. He was a, understood capital allocation beautifully. And Full Corp was a terrific business. And for those of your listeners who aren't familiar with it, I'll tell them in a breath. It's um, a distributor of pool supplies and equipment. And it gets margins in the mid-single digits, most distributors, margins in the low single digits. But Pool Corp has this unique franchise that permits it to get these ridiculously high returns for a distributor. And those ridiculously high returns multiplied by frequent inventory turnover mean they get huge returns on capital and do everything that you want a compounder to do. Well, I bought it right. and. Sold it after it appreciated four or five times in our portfolio because I allowed some thinking about erroneous thinking about valuation and probably about the economy to creep into my thinking. You know, pool construction is somewhat linked to the construction cycle. And so I probably let all these things influence my thinking and went up selling the position in its entirety. And having made, like I said, four or five times our capital on the business, well, I think it's appreciated about tenfold since then. So what that taught me was that you either have to be an investor or an economist. Uh, not many people can be both. And I don't know any wealthy economists, so I'd rather be uh, an investor. And I, so I just try to tune out some of this economic stuff that uh, can infect your thinking, uh, usually negatively. Yeah, I, I was reading your letters to shareholders yesterday, and there was one from I guess, August 2020, so in the middle of the COVID pandemic, and, and you wrote, we have no predictions about the direction of the economy or markets, and certainly not the virus. The trajectory of the virus and its ultimate duration and impact on the economy are unknowable. What is knowable is that on occasion, the unthinkable happens. Unforeseen acts of terrorism occur, real estate bubbles burst, or a pandemic emerges. This means we must own businesses with both bulletproof balance sheets and outstanding and durable business models that can withstand unthinkable economic hardship, which are run by ethical managers whom we can trust to act in our best interests. And that strikes me as such an important insight that you, I mean, in a way it gets back to stoicism, right? It's like controlling what we can control and letting go of what we can't control. And, and just recognizing the fact that the direction of the economy and the market and viruses and stuff is just not really knowable, unless maybe you're Soros or Druckenmiller or someone like that, I don't know. Um, and, right. and so just that recognition, having the humility to recognize that that's not knowable strikes me as a, a really important first step in long-term investment success. Yeah. So I, one of the things when I tell young investors when I'm mentoring them is make a choice. You're either an economist or an investor, unless you're one of those five people you mentioned. And I just rhetorically say there's probably five people on the planet who can consistently tell you 
uh, what the dollar is going to do, what the price of gypsum is going to be, what oil might be, or the price of money. I know none of those things, and I simply don't have enough mental, mental bandwidth to be able to allocate any room at all to these things. So I do my best to invest in a manner where those things are ultimately going to be unimportant. And this leads to a real important point that you made in your book, and Howard Marks talks about if you were out of the market for, you know, what, 44 months out of the last 7,000 months or something like that, you know, you, you missed 100% of the market return. Yeah, and sometimes so, even if you miss a few days, you, yeah, yeah. you miss almost all of the market return. And uh, Dr. Henrik Messenbinder at the University of Arizona uh, put a fine point on this when he, uh, in his study, which is also referenced at some point in your book, that since 1926, 4% of all public companies have accounted for 100% of the return in excess of the five-year treasury. That means the other 96 cumulatively added up to return from the five-year treasury. So that puts a real fine point on how difficult this business is. You know, when uh, 96% of the businesses at which you're going to look are not going to add value and help you justify your fees. You, you had a very interesting exchange with Bessembyanda that, that you shared with me that I think is, it gets at a really central conundrum in the challenge of being a successful long-term investor. So for people who don't know, Hendrik Bessenbinder is this Arizona State University professor. And as Peter said, he, he did this really important study where he goes back, I think, from 1926 to 2016. And he ends up saying, OK, so basically 4.3% of stocks created all of the net gains in the US market. And so my friend Jason Zweig wrote a characteristically smart and insightful article about this saying, well, this shows that searching for the next super stocks is like hunting for a few needles in an immense field of haystacks. And so people like Bessenbinder would say, well, so, okay, so this is why most active strategies fail, right? Because people, the fund managers aren't diversified enough. And so they miss out on owning those few stocks that actually accounted for all of the gains, like the Amazons and the Apples and the Home Depots and the like. But you came to another conclusion, which... I think it's also a, re a really important way to read it. Can you explain your slightly subversive reading of Bessenbinder's study? Yeah, I love your characterizing of subversive because I think that's exactly what it is. But I said, hallelujah. This means someone who's got the ability to figure out what those 4% are is going to kill him. And you know, if you're going to be in this business, I think you have to have internal belief that, yeah, I can find those great businesses. After all, what are we all doing every day? I mean, most of the people that I know and respect in this business are doing nothing but looking for those four percenters. And so, yeah, I said, this is really, really good news. This means someone who's got a quality bent and a concentrated portfolio is going to win. It supports, in one sense, the Bogle argument, which uh, Warren and Charlie endorse, that most people ought to be in index funds. But for those few active managers who are good enough to identify the great businesses and buy them in quantity, I thought Best and Binder's study was really good news. Yeah, I've sort of interpreted it both ways, personally. Um, I mean, I guess, I guess intuitively I'd done this a long time ago because I've always owned a couple of index funds. And I, I always put my wife's money and my kids' money in index funds because I thought they shouldn't pay for my delusions in thinking that I could beat the market. But then with my own money, typically, 
I, although I do have a couple of index funds, I've tended to own very concentrated funds run by people I trust because so, uh, you know, one of them has maybe 10 stocks. Another has most of its money in about eight or 10 stocks, but probably owns about 20 stocks. And so I do, th I do think there's, you can interpret the data in different ways, but there is a really strong argument for saying that you want to, you want to concentrate, but then, but then that's kind of disastrous if you're not good. Yeah, I completely agree with your assessment. But for the investing community, it means you ought to put your money in an index fund. But for the people who are on the other side or in the investment community itself, it means, well, if you're good and you can find those businesses that are going to compound and create above average value over a long period of time and buy them right, it's good news. So it's, uh, it's got two interpretations. And your, your view of concentration was also very much influenced by Mason Hawkins, who I, I interviewed many years ago, uh, not that many years ago, but for the Great Minds Investing book that I wrote. Can you talk about the, your, your epiphany that came from listening to Mason talk about concentration? Yeah, sure. I was in a, some conference up in New York, and I can't even remember what it was, but I, I remember the moment like it was yesterday. Again, you know, as this person, you know, who's trying to form an investment philosophy and, you know, reading Buffett and, and Munger and saying, yeah, that makes sense, but, you know, how do you, how do you apply this? And I heard Mason say in his speech to an investment group, why own your 40th best idea? And I said, aha. Yes, that's some of the wisdom that I have been searching for. What is the point of owning your 40th best idea? Let's say it's an equally distributed 40 businesses in a portfolio. If you're lucky enough to have that business double in value, it will add exactly two and a half percentage points to your portfolio. Who is smart enough to find 40 businesses that are that good? Well, I'm certainly not one of them. So I figured, well, what's a manageable number? And I said, well, 20 sounds like a lot. 15 sounds okay. 10, 10 sounds even better because, you know, I, I just can't keep the financial details of 15 businesses in my head with any, uh, you know, with, with any depth. So, you know, I, I just always felt comfortable owning 10 or 12 businesses that I thought I could know well enough to risk sizable amounts of investor capital and my own capital. And, and it's worth noting that you also tend to hold them for a long time. So these are businesses that you know very well. But I also, I, I mean, I was, I, my math is not great, but I, I, I was counting up your holdings on the back of an envelope the other day. And it looked to me like you have about 35% of your portfolio in your top three holdings and maybe 60 or so in your top 10. So it is a pretty concentrated portfolio with long-term, an emphasis on long-term holdings that are businesses that you regard as really superior that could yeah, be part of that four percent yeah there's a lot of clutter in our 13f if you look at it but you're essentially right you know i think that their top three businesses are at least uh 30 to 5 to 40 percent of our assets and uh, the top 10 are easily 75 or 80 percent of our assets and there's a you know small farm team uh, above and beyond the core holdings so the top three, I think, when I looked, were Microsoft, which I think you bought initially about 10 years ago, I think in 2013, and American Tower Corp, which you've owned for well over 20 years and has been a 100-bagger, I think, and Markel, which you've owned for a long time. And I wondered if you could talk about a couple of those 
as a kind of illustration of what it is you're looking for when you're looking for these great businesses, the 4% of great businesses that make all the difference. How, how does a company like Microsoft, for example, embody what it is you're looking for? You know, each of those three businesses illustrates a, a distinct path uh, to getting to investing. So when we bought Microsoft, uh, Balmer was still in charge there. And nobody liked him. Nobody liked Microsoft. It was uh, a technology dinosaur. They had announced that they were going to buy Nokia, and which is a cell phone company back then that nobody cares about today at least from the standpoint of cell phones. And I think Microsoft agreed to pay something on the order of eight, nine or $10 billion for it. Well, the market valuation went down by that amount, by the purchase price, literally when they made the announcement. So the stock market wrote off the entire purchase price of Nokia in 30 seconds. Uh, we had been looking at some of the old technology businesses like Microsoft and, and eBay and, and some others. And uh, we came up with some simple arithmetic that the Microsoft Outlook business alone, you know, that is your email, your PowerPoint, your Excel, and, and your Word, that was in virtually every office on in the United States and mostly around the world, and uh, was worth uh, about a dollar eighty per share in terms of free cash flow. And so the stock price was under 30 at the time. And so we said, well, you know, we're, we're paying a mid to high teens multiple for the Outlook business. There's everything else on top of that, you know, whether it's the server business, uh, the Windows business, all the other software businesses that Microsoft owned. I said, we may not understand those, but uh, our moment of epiphany came when my colleague Jim Rooney and I were looking out our office window in the building in Pennsylvania Avenue in D.C., and we looked out over the Edward Murrow Park at the World Bank and the uh, International Monetary Fund, and there's probably two or 300 glass windows on these buildings that we can view just from our vantage point. And uh, we made the observation that every single, behind every single one of those windows, is a computer, and that computer probably has Microsoft operating software on it. And the Outlook business is probably on every single one of those. And it ain't going anywhere for a long time. So we're willing to pay 15, 16, 17 times free cash flow for that business, and maybe something good will happen to the rest. Well, but what the rest is, is history. You know, Satya came along and we know what he's done with the business since then. So uh, we thought our margin of safety was a modest multiple. We thought we were paying uh, for what we considered to be the most important and understandable part of the business. And of course, they had a great balance sheet and they're buying back stock. And uh, I think Steve Ballmer gets a bad rap. He may not have been uh, the Hall of Fame CEO, but he also came in when the stock was extremely high priced. And if you look at his tenure as CEO, Free cash flow and earnings and all the important stuff and were compounded nicely. Returns on capital were nice, were good. They made some mistakes, and I think they lost style points because of his personal uh, approach to the business. But, uh, you know, he couldn't control 
fact that he came in with an extraordinarily high stock price with a you know 30 or 40 multiple on it. And, but, you know, ultimately Satya came in and has done just incredible things for the business. He didn't happen to just come in when the stock price was low. He came in uh, and did magnificent things from a capital allocation standpoint, you know, whether it's putting up Azure to many of the other things that he's done. But so that's the path to Microsoft. We're simply at a margin of safety and we're buying a great business, the outlook business that is, at a discounted price. It also seems like, Peter, there's a there's a common theme which I'd like to explore as well with American Tower, but which also applies to Microsoft, which is that you're always looking for these simple secular tailwinds. And and can can you talk about that both with Microsoft and with American Tower, where there's a sense that you're which which I also see with your your you have several investments in the automotive business. It seems like you're always looking for something where there's a long secular runway that uh, that, 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 that to mix metaphors. Yeah, every mega compounder we've owned had a long secular tailwind behind it. And uh, of course, we didn't know that at the time we bought Microsoft, but it was there. But um, in the case of American Tower, which is an interesting story, uh, I discovered it in, I think, 1998 um, when it was part of a predecessor company called American Radio systems a lot of people don't realize that american terror was spun off from american radio in the late 1990s american radio was run by the late steve dodge who was a fabulous ceo a great value creator another guy who didn't have you know the analog uh, path into this business uh he was an english major at yale hmm. i think he might have gotten an mba somewhere but uh, he didn't let that uh, hurt him and uh, he's just a serial value creator and, and, a, and a great guy about which I could tell you some wonderful stories. He died tragically a few years ago in a bicycling accident down in uh, Florida. But he was running American radio systems, which itself was a terrific business. It was terrestrial radios, which until the internet came along was a fabulous business because, you know, if you own the dominant radio station in town, uh, you know, if you own WNEW in New York, you had no choice but to advertise with them and it cost nothing to except for a small amount of money for content to run a radio station anyhow after the telecom act of 1996 i think it was or paved the way for digital uh communications after the explosion of, of digital communications um steve began to get some calls from people who wanted to hang uh digital cell phone antennas on his radio towers uh, digital uh, communications require much requires a much denser network of cell sites than the old analog because the signal propagation characteristics, which means the distance that the signal will carry, are much lower. So you need a lot more cell sites. So people want to hang cell uh, or put cell sites on Steve's towers. So he gets the idea. Well, maybe we can start aggregating these towers into a business. There is a footnote in one of American Towers. SEC filings that made reference to a separate stock option program for the employees of something called the uh, American Tower Systems. That's all it was. It was a single sentence, but I read it and I called up Steve with whom I had a great relationship. And, you know, we talked about the radio business and other businesses and other things for a long time. Well, um, you would have thought I uh, called, um, you know, the 
Defense Intelligence agent, Agency in Fort Lee, Maryland, and then asked him uncomfortable questions. He basically hung up on me. So I knew that there was something here at which to look that required further inquiry. Well, we figured out that it was a cell tower business, and we got some sense for, is it bigger than a bread box type economics? And we understood that they were good. And so we started to buy, we already had a huge position in American radio. But we bought more American radio because we figured that this business was going to be externalized in one way, shape, or form. That's why they had a separate stock option program for it. So sure enough, they did. They wound up spinning it off. And uh, it went to 44 bucks a share. Remember, there was a one-issued market even before it was spun off. People started to get really excited about it. It went to 18 or 20 bucks in the one-issued market, then went to $44 a share. After people figured out what a great business a cell tower business was, you know, where your operating costs are $10,000 a year and your rents might be over $100,000 a year and anybody can do the map. And all you had, the only assumption that you had to make was were digital communications going to grow or not? And uh, this is long before the iPhone. So we're really talking about voice. And uh, so that was the pillar assumption that you had to make. Are digital communications going to uh, expand or not? And we made the assumption that they were, so we bought a lot of it. And as you probably know, um, American Terror got caught up in the land grab when people figured out the cell terror business and the carriers like uh, AT&T and back then GTE. And um, others were selling their carrier, uh, their terror portfolios, because the carriers had to figure out whether they wanted to sell service or be in the real estate business. And of course, uh, the uh, network of towers and cell sites had to expand dramatically to accommodate uh, the growth in wireless communications combined with the lower propagation characteristics of the digital uh, capable frequencies. So the point is, I mean, the, the number of cell sites and cell towers had to grow exponentially for a long period of time. People figured this out and they bid up these stocks to really unsustainable prices during the dot-com boom, which helped further fuel the rise of these stocks. Well, American Tower got over-levered, and like all of the people in the cell tower business did, and they, they almost had to because there was a land rush. And, you know, you don't get a second chance to buy a cell tower. You know, once it's bought, it's gone. And so that was a mistake. And so the stock went from 44 bucks a share uh, to uh, under 80 cents a share in a fairly short period of time. And I mean, you, you, you and Chuck Acre, as I remember, who was also a very early believer in American Tower, actually went to visit Steve Dodge. And this, this kind of illustrates an important point, which is that throughout your career, you're really betting on the individual, the quality of the individual. Can you tell us about that meeting with Steve Dodge, the founder and CEO, at this moment where he's just yeah, been sure. crushed, his stock has gone from 44 to 80-something cents, and it's yeah. partly because of his mistakes? Yeah, well, in, uh, you know, businesses are like people. They make mistakes, and they have hard times. And so American Terror had its hard time and its big mistake, uh, which was getting over-levered in the dot-com bust. There are also some adjacent businesses. There's a teleport business that they were trying to boot up at the same time. They were just bitten off a lot more than they could chew, and they got over-levered in the process. And so Steve agreed to see 
me and Chuck. And so some of us went up to visit with Steve and he said, I'm going to give you an hour. He said, you understand I have a business that I'm trying to save. That requires my full time and attention. But uh, you guys were here early on. You act like my business partners, not like renters of the stock. And so, you know, I'll give you an hour. So we went up to Boston to visit with him. And uh, Steve, who was ordinarily a smart, laid back guy, he was still smart, but he certainly wasn't laid back. He, he was ashen faced and he was quite grave. And uh, he, he said again, give you an hour. I got a business to fix. I'll answer whatever questions you have to the extent it's legal for me to do so. So have at it. And then I got to go see if I can fix this business. And uh, he uh, held his hand up, not literally, but rhetorically and figuratively and said, this is my fault. I did it. Nobody else is responsible. It's the worst thing that's ever happened to me in my business career. I think I can fix it. But I'm, but there is no certainty here. And so, by the way, your listeners might be interested the problem was a $200 million bond maturity that was looming that during the go-go years of the dot-com stuff, uh, some investment banker had foisted upon them, and it was payable either in cash or in shares of stock at the company's election. But if the company could not come up with cash, they had to come up with stock. So in 2002, Nobody who was in this business, an American tower at that time was sort of considered a telecom stock because of who its tenants were, even though it was a real estate business, but it was banked on the telecom side. So the telecom banker, bankers have been instructed to shrink their plugs. There's not $200 million available to take care of this uh, bond. And um, so the arbitrageurs figured out, well, they're going to have to pay it off in stock. So the thing to do is short as much stock as you can, buy the bond and short the stock. Because if you drive down the price, they have to deliver theoretically an infinite number of shares to satisfy the $200 million bond. So you could own the whole business if you own the bond. So they buy as much of the bond as they could and short stock against it. And um, But that strategy didn't work out. Steve was able to find $200 million but by going to the private equity community, satisfied that obligation. And the stock since went from uh, as high as $305 a share uh, within the past 18 months. It's down a lot since then. But uh, the point behind that story, William, is that Steve acted honorably. He accepted full responsibility for what he did. And uh, Steve did not do this alone. And he had some great people around him. Because Steve was an honorable, good guy, he had honorable, good people around him, not the least of which was Brad Singer, his chief financial officer. And I'll segue into a, a brief story about Brad. I was going to some conference up in New York, and I saw him on the other side of the street dragging a suitcase. And so I crossed the street to join him. I said, it's a hot day in New York. What are you, what are you dragging your suitcase? And he said, well, you know, firm needs to save money. He didn't have anybody with him at the time, so he wasn't being watched. So he was saving money. He was doing the right thing when people weren't watching, which is, you know, one definition of, uh, of, uh, of, of integrity, doing the right thing when people aren't looking. So I seem to remember yeah, he, he was the guy also who told you once when you asked him what, what was the single biggest destroyer of capital 
And didn't didn't he say boredom that it was uh, managers deciding they just couldn't couldn't sit on their hands? Management boredom. So I asked Brad, what's the biggest destroyer value among public companies? And I didn't even get the question up before. He said management boredom, which means they go out and they get some money and you know they go spend it on something stupid. You know, boards of directors can't sit on their hands. I mean, we're getting paid fees for something, right? Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered, and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day, you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. 
All right, back to the show. Which has also been a crucial lesson for you in terms of overcoming your addiction to trimming things like American Tower over the years, right? Because you, you came out of that meeting with Steve Dodge, I think, and tripled your position. And then it just kind of shot to the moon, right? I mean, it went up over a hundredfold over the years. Right. And, yep. and, and so trimming that was kind of always a mistake, right? Yeah. You know, in every, yeah, it was, it was a mistake. And um, it went up over 300-fold at one point and is now up, uh, still up 200-fold at its current price. But it's like Microsoft, which has been public since the early 1980s or sometime in the 1980s. Well, I think it reached an all-time high within the past two weeks, which means in the seven or 8,000 days it's been a public company, there's been 10 days in which it was a good time to sell Microsoft. Although there was that long period where it kind of went nowhere, right? That's true. So my point is a rhetorical one, but you, but you get the idea. Yeah. You know, and, and this goes back to, you know, Best and Binders study that 4% of the stocks are, account for 100% of the return. If you can find one of those four percent and believe you own one of those four percent, it it ought to take a, a really super convincing argument to get out of them. Uh, you know, nobody has a, a good answer for this because nobody knows where the all-time forever top is in a business. You know, Chuck somewhat laconically says, "You know, let them compound till they stop compounding." And I don't have a better answer than that, but I, I do know that you know, these businesses are scarce, and once you own one, you want to hold on to it for forever. Is um, is best I can come up with. I mean, you've we, also we raised another know. important point about this um, this whole issue of judging the the integrity and the quality of the management, which I think is consistent with Satya Nadella at Microsoft, who came in much to your good fortune about a year after you bought the stock. Tom Gaynor, a friend of yours and mine, who's um, the CEO of Markel, which obviously has been a, a, a huge position for you, and also Steve Dodge at, um, at American Tower. And this raises a really important question, because you've said in the past that investing with CEOs you like and admire is essential, but how the hell do you go about it? I mean, what are you actually doing when you go visit a company or you're assessing their financial statements? actually to assess whether they're a good person that you're willing to partner with over the long run. That's incredibly hard, and it's almost impossible to do, and ultimately you have to go by your gut, uh, you know, particularly uh, these days when um, I think CEOs feel so constrained by um, Sarbanes-Oxley and, and Dodd-Frank. You know, they're, they're so scripted. There's a lawyer in the room every time that they're giving a conference call or talking to investors or an investor relations person taking notes. So knocking them off the script is, is really important. Uh, but it's a nice segue. You asked the three, we talked about the three top positions. Microsoft, plain old-fashioned value. It was a great business out of distressed price for the wrong reasons. Path number one. Path number two, American Terror was simply a great business, great managers. We had to, were able to buy it at the right price because, as one of your previous interviewees, uh, Christopher Beck, pointed out, there were some clouds, not necessarily negative clouds at the original time of purchase, uh, but people simply didn't understand the business. It was married inside a larger business. So that's path number two, great business, great managers. Path three to Markel. Uh, Markel is not necessarily a, a great business, with all due respect to my many friends there. 
but insurance by its nature, property and casualty insurance by its nature is not a great business. It can be a very good business, uh, but you can wipe out years of earnings in one day with one catastrophe. And so it doesn't fit the characteristic that we seek, which is inherently superior business. But uh, Markel is populated by people that we believe are not only excellent capital allocators, uh, but thoughtful people who understand the primacy of their obligation to the owners of the business. And not only that, uh, they think deeply about the relationship with the owners of the business, express their, uh, their, their, all their communications with the shareholders, whether it's an SEC filing or an earnings report, uh, are expressed directly in a straightforward managed manner. There's very few adjectives. They tell you like it is. In fact, uh, their policy of, um, of, of reserving conservatively uh, extends to the way uh, they report to their shareholders. You know, they have this mantra of more likely redundant than deficient, which are insurance terms. So redundancy means you have excess excess reserves. Deficient is exactly what it sounds like. You don't have enough reserves. So the mantra is more likely redundant than deficient. So uh, I think it's echoed in the way they report the results to their owners of their business. I remember a few years ago, you know, their earnings came out and, you know, they're looked like they didn't compare well to the previous year or the previous quarter or something like that. But if you looked in the 10Q, the reason was uh, they had taken an, an accrual for additional earnout payments to a business that they had bought in Markel Ventures. That's good. Uh, you want the people in Markel Ventures to be earning, uh, to be, uh, get their uh, earnout for superior performance. But of course, you've got to expense that. So that's why the earnings didn't look as good. And there was none of this nonsense about, well, adjusted earnings would have been higher were it not for this accrual for an earnout. They just told you exactly like it was and gave their shareholders enough credit for being intelligent enough to figure out what the truth was on their own without being led by the nose and certainly without being given all this nonsense about adjusted this, that, or the next. And in one of your podcasts, you, you, you said Charlie Munger calls it like it is, and it's a word that begins with B and ends in T. Yeah. But he's right. He's absolutely, totally right. And if there are any CEOs or investor relations people listening to this podcast, stop doing that now. There were two things you're I loved the, today. You read the sermon. <laughs> yeah. Well, there were a couple of things that I, before we move on from this subject of evaluating the quality of management, which is clearly hugely important. A couple of things I wanted to mention that you've you've said in the past, because I think they're really worth our um, listeners bearing in mind. So the first is you once said, I have a quick test, which is, would I be happy to introduce this CEO to a group of my investors at a cocktail party? Yeah. Would he or she fit in? Would they sense that this person is a partner? Or would I worry about my investors getting a whiff of a two for me, one for you kind of person? That seems to me a, a really valuable insight and a, a practical insight. Like this is ultimately a social business. By that, I don't mean, you know, have a drink with your friends kind of social business. But, you know, we're reevaluating people as social animals. And that's part of the reason why we sit down and, and talk with people and, and try to get a sense for what makes them tick. 
and, and get them off the IR script because we want to find out if they have a sense of uh, how, they grow, how they're going to relate to their shareholders and potential shareholders. Do they view them as partners or do they view them as a constituency? Do they view them as people who are simply going to vote on a compensation package? And once you leave the meeting and the door closed, do they go back to being uh, purely self-serving people who, who are trying to extract as much in the form of equity compensation from their shareholders as they can possibly get away with and ISS will permit? So, you know, this goes back to the, the, the Mark Hill story, uh, which I, I should tell you in a breath. I originally met with the company shortly after it went public in the mid-1980s. And I, I think I was with the Johnston Lemon Research team at the time. And I, I met with Steve Mark Hill. And at that time, they had this huge book of equine mortality. I didn't know what, anything about horses, except I was scared to death of them. And I'm thinking... Equine mortality? Does that mean barn fire? Does that mean equine encephalitis? I mean, this, this, this sounds like something I can't understand. But turns out that equine mortality is actually a pretty good line of business to write. But it, it can bite you, and I hate to, no pun intended or mixed metaphor intended, but, you know, it's, I stepped away from it because, I, you know, as a, as a cell-side analyst, I had this nightmare about the headline saying, you know, equine encephalitis sweeps through Kentucky, Mark Hill broke. And of course, that wasn't true. That wasn't going to happen. I mean, they had reinsured a bunch of it, and it just happens to be a, a pretty good line of business. But that's why I didn't get involved on the first visit. And uh, I went back years later, and uh, in the early 1990s, mid-1990s, the stock was many multiples of the IPO price. And many multiples of the value when I first visited them, but uh, the book of business had diversified sufficiently, and I knew a little bit more about these different lines of business and when we got involved then, but it was the reason we were able to bend a little bit on the inherent uh, difficult nature of the business was because we're uh, enamored of the people who ran it, and we thought that uh, they could run it the way Buffett had run National Indemnity and the other insurance businesses and generate an underwriting profit. And and, and build something up. And uh, by this time, Tom is with the business, and uh, he uh, had a good story to tell and a good, and a good record. So we got involved with Mark Hill purely because of the people. Not and that's been we how many still, years now, Peter? Since the mid-1990s. So this willingness to, to, to partner with high-quality people, an ability to stay put and sit on your hands for a long time, these are clearly important. And then just on this this question of values and character assessment, I just wanted to quote the other, the other line that I really like that I picked up from some of your writings somewhere, where you said, um, businesses will attract magnetically people who share similar values. We see this all the time. Talented people with good values find each other, whether it's a church, whether it's on the baseball team, whether it's in the corporation, they find each other. And the people who have less attractive values find themselves and they organize themselves in the businesses sometime. It's a very interesting insight to me, this idea that there's something that it, it sort of reminds me of David Hawkins talking about these attractor fields, you know, where a, a particular level of consciousness, you know, people are trying to be truthful. They attract other people who are trying to be truthful. And I, I have no idea if what you said is actually empirically provable, but it seems, it seems like there are these cults that form around Markel or that form around Berkshire where, where people who really value good behavior, integrity, truthfulness 
and an alignment of interests and service and the like. It, it, it's, it's really striking how there are these ecosystems that form around certain values. Well, isn't it true in, in your life that you associate with people of similar values and spiritual beliefs and thoughtfulness? And so and I just, you know, businesses are just collections of people who are organized around an idea. Yeah, I, I was also, I was talking to Saurabh Madan about this last night because we were, we were chatting in advance of our interview because I was asking what I should talk to you about. And I was asking him about another investor. And we were discussing exactly this question of how you also use your ecosystem, as Tom Gainer would say, thinking of himself as a node in a neural network, that when you have this kind of web of, uh, of mutual trust, you can ask the people in your networks, is this person honorable? Are they decent? Are they going to screw me? Or are they... Uh, and so that's really yeah. valuable as well. Yeah, you know, there's some people, and you've interviewed some people who don't think that it's valuable to visit management or to meet management, or they've had to change their mind about that. And, and I understand that because you know, very, there's no, very few managements are going to lead with the bad news. So some of them think it's their job to charm shareholders. And we're uh, fallible human beings. I mean, I'm prone to being charmed by the charismatic CEO. It's happened to me before, and it may happen again. I hope to think that I get better at this as I go along and I'm less charmable, but you know, it, it happens. I can't remember uh, who it was, whether it was on your podcast or somebody else's, but they said, you know, run away from the charismatic CEO. No, it wasn't that. It was the, the guy who used to run Medtronics, whose name will come to me in a, in a second, who so, well, Chris, uh, Chris Davis said to me recently, he, he quoted something Munger had said. I have Chris Davis coming on the podcast soon. Um, Munger talked about avoiding CEOs with a good head of hair. Uh, <laughs> I love that. that there, and, and you and I talked the other, you know, not long ago about like, the danger of very, very slick, charming investment bankers who are really good glad handers, but that doesn't really make for good investors. I mean, there, there, there is a role for people with a good head of hair. But it's it's kind of dangerous in the investment business. Well, I'm, I'm the least qualified person to judge someone based on their their, their head of hair. You know, the point is, you've got to be able to look. You know, if, if you're going to be in this business for a long time, if you're either going to make investments or you're going to manage your own business, you better be a decent judge of people and, and human beings, and you've got to be willing to be skeptical, and because. The CEO, first of all, can't tell you everything that he knows, and they can't give you a wink and a nod, but they've got to do what Dodge told us in this meeting 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago. They've got to tell you what they can and, uh, you know, and just give it to you straight on. And you've got to make an assessment whether that person is telling you the truth or not, or whether he's telling you all the truth or whether he's shading something or nuancing something or withholding something it's 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 hard to do it's very hard to do uh but there are some people uh for which you can get in an intuitive sense yeah i like this guy and i really think that i wouldn't mind the people who entrust capital to me to meet this person because they would come away with a sincere belief that this person is sharing their risk that there's a seamlessness of risk between the owner of the capital me, Peter Keith, out near the intermediary, and the person to whom I'm outsourcing their capital, you know, who's uh, Tom Gaynor or Steve Dodge or Satya Nadala. 
seeing the financial we'll organize, we'll organize ourselves according to our values i mean your values wind up showing up in the long run i have another saying is that there are no secrets by that i mean you might be able to conceal something from someone today but it's going to come out eventually who you are and what you are and what your values are yeah and also i i do think i i, I think i talked with tom gainer about this on the podcast that he 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 obviously is very good at assessing people's personalities and he's like look one one of the you can see their behavior in the past but and there's usually a tell from their behavior in the past people don't change their modus operandi a lot but then also there's obviously the um the financial incentives the way they've structured their financial incentives and so that's pretty key right just seeing you know seeing seeing the fact that tom gainer's compensation is long term it's based on long term performance or or seeing, you know, how you charge for your separate accounts. It's different than the way that you charged back at Johnson Lemon when right. it was transaction-based and there was an incentive right. to have more transactions. So I do think right. you need... So some of it is intuitive, but some of it is actually understanding the, the way incentives are structured. Yeah, and you have to understand business realities as well. You know, when Markel was a small insurer, I mean, they had no equity compensation at all. And, but as now... a business with tens of thousands of employees. They've had to migrate towards uh, a compensation plan that includes equity. And um, so that's not because there's been a philosophical shift, but it's just a business reality. But if you ask them about it, they'll explain it to you. Uh, Tom and Steve and Tony and the late Alan Kirshner explain it to you. This is simply a business reality. It doesn't necessarily... Uh, you know, it's it's a, it's a reality as a, that this emanates from a, being a larger as opposed to a smaller business. I asked Tom yesterday what I should um, ask you about, and Tom wrote slightly cryptically to me that uh, I should ask you about your farm outside Lexington, Virginia, and what you've learned from from that experience. And likewise, Sorab uh, said to me, I should ask you about your cabin in the woods and your farm outside Lexington, Virginia, because. There's something, there, there is something, Rich, that you and I have discussed before about this, um, what you can learn as an investor from farming, what you can learn from being out in the wild, from hiking, hunting, observing nature. And I wonder if you could unpack this a little for us, because it's clearly sure. an important part of your, your life that I think, I think you've drawn lessons from, from farming and, um, and the world of nature that really apply quite deeply to investing success. Yeah, to be clear, it's not a farm, and I'm not a farmer. It's a lot of raw land, mountainous land. Uh, it's quite remote. Uh, I don't own a tractor, but I have always felt comfortable in the outdoors. It's a great place to uh, cleanse your thinking. It's not just a matter of getting away from the ring phones. Um, I think it's a way of being alone with your thoughts. Uh, I think it was, uh, again, um, I can't remember which one of your podcasts it was, or it's mentioned that uh, Tom Combs uh, can do quite well, I think, with somewhere between zero and, and, and three people helping him run this gigantic portfolio plus a bunch of operating businesses, including Geico. Uh, I think when you're alone in the woods with a view of the mountains, it can inspire in you uh, an understanding that there are timeless things. Uh, the mountains don't change, not at least in ways that we are observable over short periods of time. Um, 
you can see the marketplaces taking place on the floor of the forest. There's competition for resources. There's winners and there's losers. So we see echoes of what we're doing in our business life every day. I mean, there in the forest, there's good business models and there's bad business models. And um, there's there's also in one of your podcasts, a very recent one, there, there was some discussion. Someone mentioned uh, Munger's admonition to be a spear fisherman and to you know wait until that big fat salmon comes along. Uh, my analogy that I learned from a lifetime in the woods is apex predators hunt rarely, but when they do. They take down big game. I mean, lions sleep or lie around uh, 22 or 23 hours a day, and they don't feed often. But when they do, they feed big. And so I try to apply that analogy to the investment process. We don't feed often, but we try to feed big when we do. That's a, that's so a really no- important insight. And I, I, I want to sort of dwell on that because you've, you've said to me before that you, you have to have a bit of a predatory instinct and to be wired emotionally. So that in these moments when most people are paralyzed and think the world's ending, you're ready to pounce because the hunting is easier. And it seems like over the last 33 years or so, most of your really hugely successful investments have been made, or at least many of them, during very difficult times. So can, can you elaborate on that? Because this, this image of, of the predatory hunter who's very calm Wait, waiting until the, the prey is right there in front of you and other people are fearful. It yeah. seems like such an important image and idea to me. Yeah, it, it is important. And I would just finish out the analogy that I was starting with is I have a bunch of coyotes on my place. They don't hunt unless they have any, an enormous, overwhelming advantage. So they're an example of a good business model. And that's how you ought to invest. It was when you have an enormous, overwhelming advantage and you ought to those opportunities come along infrequently. So I think that uh, our, clearly our best investments have been made in t- periods of great extreme market distress. Our very first one company we haven't talked about is occurred in 1991 during the initial Iran conflict. We wound up accumulating 6% of a company called Micros Systems which you and your listeners use every day. They're the little cash register you see at Starbucks and other places. It's a cold point of sale, but the real value, and that's the tip of the iceberg, the real value of the business is the uh, hospitality IT and software that runs hotels, restaurants, uh, casinos, cruise ships. Got sold to Oracle in 2016, I believe it was, for over $5 billion. But we were able to buy it as a net-net in 1991 uh, because their EMI office, uh, which happened to be in Kuwait, uh, was shut down by the initial Iraq invasion, and which caused a temporary interruption in their earnings. And the stock literally declined from a literally debt-free, profitable business to a net-net. Those things no longer exist. But during that period of time and subsequently, we accumulated a 6% position in the business. And they, they turned out to be you know, the necessary piece of software for the hospitality industry. So that's example one. Example two was uh, American Tower uh, during the dot-com bust. Microsoft wasn't bought during a period of market 
turmoil, but it was when everybody hates if we hated the stock. And, and so, and so to yeah, go back to microsystems as well, that's a really, you know, we were talking about farming and the like, and I remember that Lou Brown, the founder of that company, who I, I, I think you've remained friends with, he again was someone who grew up on a farm, right? And there's something, there's something relevant here uh, that I, I, I wonder if you could unpack for us, because you've said yeah. to me before that the, that kind of farm boy ethic is also a really helpful thing to to bring into the investment and business world. Yeah, nobody's no, nobody's heard of Lou Brown, but um, uh, that's because he's never needed anybody else's capital because he's been a private investor most of his life. Only wrote a couple of public companies, but he's got an extraordinary, you know, five decade or five or six decade career compounding capital at, at extremely high rates. And he's extremely smart, incredibly hardworking, very funny. I mean, he's got all the tools and he's also a decent human being. He's not in it for the money. I mean, I have a better car and a fancier house, uh, despite the fact that I am uh, just an, an ant in his world of value creation. Uh, he makes it and he gives it away. Makes it and gives it away. He's a deeply spiritual person. And um, I, th I think it's easy to give it away also if you know you can make it. But he can. He just has the gift of capital allocation. When he was running Micros, and I'll get back to his origin story in a minute, they made one significant acquisition uh, during the entire life of the company. It was a small German software company called Fidelio. But he pounced. It wasn't done on a predatory basis. It was done on a favorable basis. They were willing sellers. They didn't have to sell. Uh, but they did, and Loop saw the, their future in terms of hotel management software, and that helped fuel decades' worth of growth at Microsystems, and to this day, I'm sure, is an important part of the company's success, although you know, it's inside Oracle. It's, it's, a, it's a mouse inside the Oracle elephant. We don't know exactly how well it's doing, but I presume it's still doing well. Uh, but Lou grew up on a farm. In Maryland, uh, with a dirt road running out in front, and, you know, they'd go out and kill a chicken for dinner. I mean, it's that kind of farm. Not a gentleman's farm by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, Lou was the first one off the farm, and he knew he was going to get off the farm. In fact, I think he told me there was a dispute with his father when he was stacking hay in a barn in a hot summer day. And, you know, there's all the dust floating around, and, you know, it's just, it's just hard brutal work. And he I think he told his father, he said, you know, I'm going to have a job in an air-conditioned office someday. And I mm -hmm. don't think his father liked that too much because he took it as an insult to farming, which it was not. Uh, but the point is, all his ancestors had grown up on this farm. Well, he went to Johns Hopkins on a full ride, got a degree in electrical engineering, knew exactly what he wanted to do afterwards. He knew that his a glittering personality. He could be a good salesperson. So he became a salesperson first for Armco Steel and then for Hewlett Packard. The first Intel microprocessor came out at some point. And he just realized that he could probably, to use his words, do some damage with one of these things, but wasn't certain how. So he and some friends saw that, um, you know, the mechanical cash register business, which really had one participant, National Cash Register was ripe for disintermediation by a, a digital product. And so uh, they effectively put NCR out of the ca National Cash Register, out of the cash register business over the next three decades. 
And um, National Cash for NCR had to buy its way back into the cash register business after Micros effectively took all of their market share. Well, Micros actually started the digital industry that created other participants that eventually took all of NCR's uh, share. But um, uh, so he, he started this business practically in his garage. Uh, they had small, unexceptional quarters in Beltsville, Maryland, but they built it into the behemoth of the industry. And it was through shrewd capital allocation, putting your head down and doing the right thing every day. And uh, like I said, uh, you know, Lou's got that uh, sense of responsibility uh, that comes from growing up on a farm. Uh, when you grow up on a farm, you're always, you're always thinking, who's going to take care of the animals? What happens if I'm not there? So it's not an obsessive, compulsive desire to control the business. It's just an overwhelming sense of responsibility for what happens. Because on a farm, if something goes wrong, there's only one figure to point, and that's it, at you. You can't control the weather. You can't control disease. You can't control anything else. But you can control your effort. So that's the lesson that I learned from Lou, which is to be uh, like a forward-thinking technologist that he is, but also make sure that you've got a plan B, make sure the animals are taken care of, make sure that uh, something is is not going to destroy what you work so carefully to build. So it's this combination of, you know, farm boy ethic and technologist that I think has created a unique character in this uh, terrific capital allocator. Yeah, you you gave me this great sentence a few weeks ago when I was asking you why farming was a good analogy for investing. And you said there are no small mistakes on a farm. You said if you stop paying attention, you lose an arm. That's exactly right. And that's why I wouldn't be a good farmer. By the way, Avenir's founder, Charlie Makel, is a good farmer. Ah, that's it. Probably at this moment, I hope he's on his tractor out in his place in, in the Plains, Virginia, where he's most comfortable and uh but yeah that's exactly correct there are no small mistakes and so uh, that's why i'd be an, an awful farmer if i were a farmer i'd not wind up you know cut my leg off with a chainsaw or something like that you have to be focused and pay attention the farmer is the original preservation preservationist of capital because they can't make mistakes because mistakes are always catastrophic so people like Lou and other farmers that I know are, are wired to think about what can go wrong and what do I need to do uh, to scotch the wagon against this type of catastrophe. It's interesting that someone, someone like Lou, who's obviously extraordinary, but nobody has heard of him. I mean, I, I was trying to read about him yesterday and there's just nothing on him. I mean, like a few paragraphs here and there. He's kept under the radar. You have this great record you kept very much under the radar there's, there's you know very few interviews with you over the years or articles about you despite how strong your performance is and i know that humility is kind of really important to you that it's something you emphasize over and over um and the one of the great dangers really with investment success is is you know falling into uh you know master of the universe syndrome where you start to actually think you're incredibly good and um, the, you get caught out by, by hubris and complacency and like, can you talk about the importance of humility? And, and there's, a, there's a wonderful quote of yours that 
you often use about humility that I'd love you to share with us if you can well, figure out what it you're is. Well, probably talking about, uh, sir, there's only two kinds of people in the investment business. There are people who are humble and people are about to get humble. Yeah, you know, the endorphins start flowing when your you know, stocks are doing better than everybody else's. And you know, when that happens for a period of years, it can make you think that you're smart. Or uh, we all like to feel good about what we're doing. And we all like having a better batting average than the next person. But, uh, you know, that can be fleeting in this business. And you know, we're all humans and we're going to make mistakes. And virtually all of us, and I'm sure this applies to you, it certainly applies to me, are the beneficiaries of an enormous amount of luck. And we probably don't realize quite how lucky we've been to borrow Buffett's line. You know, if you're born in the United States, you're a male and, and, and you're white, you've already hit the genetic lottery. And I explain this to my kids, uh, you know, that you've been born, if not on third base, you're, you've been born on second base. So that has nothing to do with money. It just happens to do with circumstance. And you need to understand that. And so I have no physical disabilities. I don't think I have any crippling mental disabilities. I had incredibly good parents, good siblings wonderful people with whom I worked, uh, great mentors and people who took an interest in me. And so if you understand these things and, and believe them, you will be humble. And you also, just as a practical matter, need to understand there's probably tens of thousands of people who are smarter than you are, who are doing exactly the same thing and they're reading exactly the same stuff. And how are you going to have an edge over that? So you better stay humble in, this, in, in life and in, in business. I don't know of any people of, of great hubris who didn't wind up squandering their reputations eventually. Maybe Churchill's the exception, but there aren't too many others. You you mentioned your children, and I, I think if I'm right in remembering, you have four adult children. And, and when we were emailing a while back, you were saying, I, I view investing as simply a part of the woof and warp of living. I tell my four kids that they're investing and competing every day, whether they're aware of it in the moment or not. And I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about the kind of advice that you're drawing from your career in investing in business and sharing with your own kids, because there is this beautiful intersection of investing and worldly wisdom that I think People like Charlie obviously have tapped into very deeply. Well, I just point out to all young people, uh, you are competing whether you understand it or not. You know, whether you're a barista at Starbucks or an investment manager or a lawyer or a doctor or whatever you do, whether you uh, sweep floors or not, you're, you're competing. And so you might as well be aware of that and do your absolute best. Uh, regardless of what your task is, how, however menial it is. And uh, let me just segue here for a moment. Um, you had your interview with Arnold uh, Vandenberg a couple, few weeks ago. Uh, one thing I have in common, probably the only thing that I have in common with Arnold, is that I was a garbage man for a couple of years. That's the term we used to use. But I did it when I was in college. And one thing I learned from that a job, which was actually a great job, by the way. It's a great summer job this year. You know, it's, it's, you don't get an internship credit for it, but uh, it was a lot of fun in some ways. But what I understood was I wasn't going to do that forever. 
there were guys in that truck for whom this was the their employment apex. But I understood that because of my parents or because those were born to good health or you know had enough intellectual capability to go to college that I was going to go down a different path. But I understood even back then that that was just pure blind luck. And so uh, Arthur or Arnold and I have that in common. But regardless I what you're doing, you want to give them 110%. You know, when you towed up the scoreboard, and I am a Christian, and I believe in Christian values, and when I meet my maker, I mean, there's going to be an accounting. And I want to tell the people that I work for, invest for, that they got 110%. I want my kids to know that they should give 110%. I want to give 110% to them, and I want to give 110% uh, to my wife, you know, who enables much of what I do from a business standpoint. I was thinking about that book of Clayton Christensen's, uh, who, who obviously, as most of our listeners know, was this legendary management thinker, also a devout Mormon, who gave this famous commencement speech at Harvard Business School in 2010 and then wrote this book, How Will You Measure Your Life? And I was wondering on this question of what for you really does constitute a successful and well-lived life when you think about looking, looking back. I mean, you're only 66 at the moment. When, when you think of looking back in 20, 30, 40 years, hopefully, how do, how do you answer that question of how, how you measure a successful life? What, what you think will actually have um, uh, given you most satisfaction if you do this right? The most satisfaction, if I do this right, would be uh, found in the values that my children hold. And if they have values that direct them to serve others before themselves, then try to understand uh, their obligations to the rest of the human race, I think that I will be able to consider myself a successful father. And that's certainly the most important job that I've got on, on this planet. Uh, I try to communicate investment values to them because I, I think there's a seamlessness of your personal values and your business values. And I try to communicate this to my children. I says, you don't ever have to do anything that's unethical. Now, they live in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, they go to school with people who are lobbyists and politicians, and so they or talking to people and hanging out with people all the time who aren't telling the truth, and they know they're not telling the truth. I tell them, you never have to do that. I mean, there's some of them are paid not to tell the truth. And they say, you don't ever have to do that. And in my business, one of the wonderful things about this business and one of the unappreciated things about this business, but one of the things you learn having come up through the, the brokerage side of the business, you never have to do anything that's wrong. No one's forcing you in this business to do something wrong. No one's forcing you to buy a crummy business. No one's forcing you to buy a business with unethical managers. So these are the things that I try to communicate to my, to my kids. Look, you know, it does emanate from my Christian faith. You know, it's, you know love the Lord, the God with all their heart and all their soul and love their neighbors as they self, you know, and, I think that in, in one of your, in, in your book, there's a wonderful quote 
from, I can't remember if it was a Jewish theologian, but I'm going to ask you to help me with this, William. He said, what is the, he was asked to repeat the Old Testament while standing on one foot. Yeah, this is Hillel. Can you give yeah, it's Hillel, who is a great sage who, uh, around the time of Jesus, about 2,000 years ago, was asked to sum up um, the meaning of the Old Testament, the message of the Old Testament, while standing on one leg. And he said, basically, do, do not do to others what you wouldn't have them do to you. So the golden rule. Yeah, I mean, what better message could you give to your children? And it's funny, that, that, that message, you know, the line that you were quoting about you know, with all your heart, with all your might, and with all your soul. I mean, that's, that's, that's Jewish as well, right? I mean, do, do, we have that in the Shema prayer that Jews like me often recite every day. And also, and also actually, it's supposed to be, the, I think, in the moment of death, it's supposed to be the last, the last thing you, you recite. So I think it begins, Here, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and, and you yeah. shall love him with all your, all your heart and all your soul and all your might, or something like that. And so, so there... It's funny the way these values kind of run, run through so many different faiths and paths. Right. And, and why shouldn't, in the way you invest, love your neighbor as yourself? I mean, there's so many ways you can think about that. It means giving them the portfolio that you would have. You'd be surprised, you may know this, but you'd be surprised at how many people in this business have personal portfolios that don't resemble their actual uh, portfolio that they market to their clients. So are they uh, loving others as they love themselves and the way they uh, build their portfolios? No, I don't think that they are. But, you know, then it comes back to this notion of service and who you're serving and understanding and being aware of who you're serving and being coldly clinical when you ask yourself that question. You know, if you're not in this business to serve others, what are you going to look back at when you hang up your spikes? You know, how are you going to evaluate yourself? You know, the great thing about this business is there is a scorecard. And so I'm like being a lawyer or an accountant or um, a million other businesses. You've got a scorecard. So, you know, you'll know on the last day exactly how well you did over a long period of time. It was really striking to me where you, you, shared, me, uh, you shared with me a, a talk that you'd given to a group, I think, called Margin of Safety that Sarah Madan, who I mentioned before, hosts i think once a year and you you talked over dinner to that group and there was one quote that i wanted to read back that's very much related to this question of service where you said if you're an above average investor be thankful for this gift and understand that it is a blessing not a source of pride and give of your gift mentor struggling investors young or not so young counsel those who may not have access to competent investment advisors you would be amazed at how many people don't understand a mortgage your kids' schools, your church, your civic organization, the scouts, they all need your help. It's a different feeling to help someone get a good night's sleep as opposed to helping them get the next 10 million. Don't worry about compensation. More money than you deserve will rain upon you. That is not to say your contribution is unimportant. It is vitally important, which is why it needs to be shared widely. I thought that was such an interesting, an interesting quote that in a, I think often we, you know, even Munger calls, uh, calls um, investing it's a vocation but a low vocation but actually as tom gainer would say it's actually it's a it's a pretty sacred trust right to be able to help people with their retirement savings and to and their kids college expenses and all all of these things and it's 
it's it's kind of amazing how much this aspect of the business kind of gets forgotten. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to Anthony Dignes, irreplaceable capital. It's an enormous responsibility. And that statement that I make, I think, um, speaks for itself. Munger's probably right. There's probably 100,000 too many of us in, in this business. And <laughs> who knows? I, I won't be surprised if that changes over the next 10 years. But um, And uh, that the number actually shrinks or the uh, size of the fee pool shrinks. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a low calling if you're in this uh, for, for the money. It's a high calling if you're in it to serve others. And I am insistent on this notion that investment management is, is a calling. I think that's a beautiful note on which to end, Peter. Thank you so much. It's really been a delight. And I, I really am grateful to Sarah because thanks to your modesty, you tend to fly under the radar. And so I, it's just been a great pleasure getting to uh, read your letters to shareholders and listen to the very occasional interviews that you've done in the past and to learn more about your, your way of thinking. So thank you so much for this uh, rare opportunity to learn from the wisdom that you've accumulated over all these decades in the investment business. You're quite welcome, William. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. Uh, it's a great pleasure. Take care. All right, folks, many thanks for joining me for this conversation with the remarkable Peter Keefe. If you'd like to learn more from Peter, you may want to visit the website for his investment firm, Avenir Corporation, and check out the archive of his letters to clients going back to 2008. I've included a link in the show notes for this episode. Personally, I feel like I need to listen to our conversation several more times and really dwell on some of the ideas he mentioned, including that all-important question we discussed. As he put it, you're serving someone. The question is, who? I think one reason why Peter is so impressive is that it's clear that he's not just great at compounding money over the long term, but is truly dedicated to serving others not least by sharing his hard-earned wisdom with us today. So I'm very grateful to him. In any case, I'll be back really soon with some more fascinating guests, including a wonderfully enjoyable conversation with Chris Davis, who's not only a very prominent fund manager, but also a director of Berkshire Hathaway. If you want to hear what it's like to be behind closed doors in a board meeting with Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, you'll definitely want to hear that conversation with Chris. So I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already. In the meantime, please feel free to follow me on Twitter at WilliamGreen72 and do let me know how you're liking the podcast. I'm always delighted to hear from you. And I do try to reply as often as I can, though I sometimes get a little behind. Anyway, until next time, take good care and stay well. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.